0: The Lord calls us to worship this morning from the book of Psalms, chapter 63. O God, you are my God, early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh longs for you, in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. And my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you that we may call you our father today, that as we gather as your people today to worship you, Lord, we give you all praise and honor and glory and thanks for you are worthy. You are the king who sits upon the throne, and it is right for us to praise you today to lift up the name of our savior. Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would fill us today, that we would have a sense of knowing your presence with us and to see the beauty of the gospel in your word that you have given to us. Lord, we pray that all that we do today in singing and in speaking and in our thoughts would be glorifying to you, Lord Jesus, and that you would receive all the glory for everything that happens. Lord, we pray now as you taught your disciples to pray, saying out loud, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done This morning for our Confession of Faith, we're going to be reciting together the Apostles' Creed. It's on page 845 in your hymnal if you'd like to turn there. I'm going to begin by asking you a question. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Hear these words of assurance from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, beginning with verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Let's continue to worship now singing marvelous grace of our loving Lord in your hymnal on page 465. children can come forward for the children's sermon. Come on down. Well, as you're getting seated, boys and girls, I want to say good morning to you. Wonderful to have you. Wyatt, come over here, buddy. got a seat right here for you, beside Caleb. There you go. All right, we've been going through our Apostles' Creed. What we use is our confession of faith on Sunday mornings. And we've come to a statement that's a little bit tough and hard to understand. And this actually was one of the questions that one of our children had uh, several weeks ago now, maybe a couple months ago. What does it mean that Jesus descended into hell? What does it mean that Jesus descended into hell? And there are several reasons that some people give for why this might have happened. Or what does it mean that Jesus did he physically, actually, locally, His, his body, God did He go into hell? Went into
1: and save the world from the devil.
0: God went into heaven and saved the world from the devil. Absolutely right, Wyatt. But we're at, the, we're at a part before that. Just before that today. Just before that. Why did Jesus, why did we make that statement? And there are some churches that don't make this statement when they confess the Apostles' Creed, that Jesus descended into hell. And why would they, why would they believe that? Why would He have physically gone? Why would He go there in His soul to undergo that for us? Some say it was to uh, go to the people who were His enemies, who were suffering in hell, and say, See, I've won the victory. I'm here telling you who have been condemned by God's wrath because you did not have faith in Him, that I am victorious. I'm here to tell you. That's what He's saying. Maybe it's to go and to liberate Old Testament saints who were stuck in limbo, who hadn't yet gone to heaven. That's what some people say. And others say to go to the people who are in hell and offer them a second chance to hear the Gospel and believe. But all of those are false. None of those are true. None of those are actually true. Is it possible to have a second chance after you die to believe the gospel? No. Nope. And is it true that the people in the Old Testament went to hell while they waited for Jesus to resurrect from the grave? No. Does anybody know what the Bible says about those who died? Where do they go? Say it a little louder. To
1: heaven. To heaven.
0: The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's not a wait. There's not a holding pattern. There's not a room that you go into and wait. It is immediate. So, what does it mean? Why do we confess that Jesus descended into hell? Why did He do it? Why do we say that? There are several things that reasons why we say it. It is because Jesus did actually undergo, went under the power of death for a time. Our our confession says that. If you're learning the questions in the Shorter Catechism, it says that Jesus became a man and He suffered under the pains of death for a time. But last week we said in the book of Acts that it wasn't possible for Jesus to be held by death. And in the book of Acts chapter 2, it says that the Lord, the, our God in heaven, the Father, actually loosed, loosed, excuse me, loosed the pains of death for Him because it was not possible for them to hold Him. So did Jesus go into hell? No, he didn't actually go into hell. But he did undergo and was in the throes of death so that you and I would never have to be. He broke the bonds of death that held every person before him. And he broke them for you and me. So when you say he descended into hell, you can say with thankfulness in your heart that the Lord Jesus underwent that so I would never have to. Praise the Lord. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for these words in our confession and what they mean. What they mean to us, those of us who have hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we no longer have to fear death. We don't have to be afraid of what will happen to us because the Bible teaches us that the Lord Jesus went under death our enemy for us. And though he stayed there for a time, he did not stay. And Lord, I pray for our covenant children this morning that as they have thoughts and questions and wonder about death, that one of the things that can be settled in their mind, and even in ours as adults, is that death is not an enemy who has control over us any longer, that it is truly a doorway to Your presence. Lord, we thank You and we love You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all. As the children are going back to their seats, our responsive reading this morning is going to be Psalm 84. Um, It's on page 814 in your hymnal. Psalm 84. I'll begin with the light portion. Please respond out loud together with the bold. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty? Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young. Altar, Lord Almighty, my my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. With and strength and
1: strength,
0: Hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Shield, God. From your Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Our next song is going to be from the insert that's in your bulletin. We're going to stand and sing together, I Stand Amazed in the Presence. pastoral prayer time. I wanted to pray again for uh, vacation Bible school that's coming up and starting tomorrow. Uh, as you can see, we are decorated uh, and ready, and there have been a lot of hands uh, working. And certainly, Brandy has spent a lot of time. and I wanted to pray that the Lord would bless all of the preparations, that He would bless our children and our workers. Um, and as uh, one of our ruling elders prayed just before the service, that little hearts and big hearts would be touched, that children and adults. Uh, would be impacted by hearing the gospel this week. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you uh, to be able to pray now in your presence, to be gathered as your people, uh, to, to be shoulder to shoulder with brothers and sisters in Christ in this room on this special day that you have given us to worship you. Lord, I thank you that in your wisdom you have told us in your word it is best for us to lay our worldly cares down one day a week that we would worship You and honor You and occupy all of our thoughts and activities with You. Lord, I pray that You would give Your people truly Sabbath rest today. That they would rest in the Lord Jesus knowing that You will provide. And Lord, as there are things that I'm sure many of us in this room could do and maybe even try to get ahead, I pray that You would sanctify our rest for us today. That You would also bless our work this week. And Lord, as we Get ready tomorrow to gather for the beginning of Vacation Bible School. Lord, I lift up to you all of the workers who have already been working, and I pray that you would bless them this week as they welcome children into their classrooms and activities. Lord, I pray that there would be a sweet, sweet spirit of your presence among us, that you would bless the children who come, that you would also bless the workers. Lord, be with them. Use the words that they are teaching our children to also minister the gospel to their hearts that they would believe the things that they're saying. Lord, we we thank You and praise You to be able to have Vacation Bible School as a way to train up our children to know You. And I pray that You would bless all the ones who have already sacrificed time to be ready and that You would give back to them time in the work that they do. Lord, I pray for those in our midst who are um, struggling and suffering and uh, grieving, those who are, are struggling emotionally and mentally and spiritually, and who are not seeing a way forward. Lord, I pray that You would be for them light in darkness today. I pray that You would help us as a church family to bear the burdens of one another, to love one another and to serve, and to see that it truly is more blessed to give than to receive. Lord, I pray that You would also help us to be receiving people, that as others want to express their love for You by serving us, that we would be faithful and willing to be served. Lord, help us in in that, that we would see the body of Christ working for our benefit and for your glory. Lord, I do pray for Roger and Laura today, two missionaries that we support here at Lebanon. I pray that you would bless them with courage and faithfulness. I pray that you would bless their times in the word this week, that it would be a sweet time to fellowship with you. I pray that you would bless also their prayer life that it would be something that impacts their soul and their heart and that that would overflow into the way that they interact with others. And I do pray for their spheres of influence, that they would be spreading the good news of the gospel in a way that honors you. And Lord, may they be finding all of their hope and satisfaction in you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Ruth, chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2, we're going to be reading verses 17 to 23. The sermon this morning is entitled, Amazed by Grace. Amazed by Grace. Ruth chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ether of barley. Then she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she brought out what and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today? And where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. Ruth the Moabitess said, He also said to me, You shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women and that people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of the barley harvest and wheat harvest, and she dwelt there with her mother-in-law. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Ruth chapter 2 ends with an emotional, intense dialogue between Naomi and Ruth after a long day of working for Ruth. And a long day of waiting for Naomi. There was a real cloudy uncertainty about what was taking place. Naomi had stayed at home while Ruth went to glean. And not until there was rustling at the doorway did she know that Ruth actually made it back home. That she had done anything that day. And after 23 verses, the narrative catches up to the story. And what the storyteller told us in chapter 2 verse 1 that there was a man who was a relative of Elimelech, the dead husband of Naomi, this man named Boaz who lived still in Bethlehem. The drama has been moving along, but finally the narrative that we have been looking at and reading has caught up to what we know. And the high watermark in chapter 2 is how Ruth responds, as we looked at last week, with astonishing humility at the graciousness of Boaz as he provided for her. He gave her a place to work, He gave her protection, and He gave her a meal, none of which she had apart from His graciousness. And as we watch and listen to Naomi today, this is the first time she's spoken of substance since chapter 1. As we listen to Naomi today and watch her take in the news of the day, of the work that Ruth was able to do, and the light of God's grace that shines brightly in her heart, we see some scales falling off and a heart that rejoices and is amazed at God's grace. I want to look at this passage under three headings this morning. First, an unimaginable harvest in verses 17 to 19. Secondly, whose kindness was Naomi talking about in verses 20 to 22? And lastly, Naomi's theology at work. So number one, an unimaginable harvest in verses 17 to 19. And look at Ruth's work for just a moment and consider all that she was able to bring home. In a day's work, she had started early in the morning and she worked from morning until just before sundown. And she had just enough time to winnow what she had gathered that day and then go home as it was getting dark. It says that she was able to take what she had gathered. She beat out the grain and there was an ephah of barley. And it also says that she had kept back some of the meal that Boaz gave to her. She had some leftovers that she had set aside to take home to give to her mother-in-law. Now, I don't know about you, but unless there's a footnote in my Bible that tells me what an ephah is, I'm somewhat at a loss to know how much did she actually have. It's not something that I measure by in the kitchen. Likely you don't either. But suffice it to say that she took a lot home. It was about five and a half gallons worth. Or 20 to 50 pounds. Can you imagine being sent to the store? Please get some potatoes. And we would like to have a meal tonight. And you come home with a 50 pound bag. And you pay the same price as a 5 pound bag. Ruth came home with a lot more than she ever thought would be possible to come home with. It reminds me of the story of Jesus with the fishermen in Luke chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. Jesus was out on a boat because there were so many people. And he looked over at Peter and he said, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. And he said, Lord, we were out all night. but because And we didn't catch a thing. But because you're saying to do it, we will do it. And they caught so many fish, their nets couldn't hold it. That's kind of the idea that's taking place here. This was absolutely a miracle. This wasn't just Boaz's doing. This was the grace of God working in Ruth and Naomi's life. It is unmistakable. It is clear. You cannot assign all of this to Boaz or to just good luck. There's no such thing as good luck for a child of God. It is God's grace that was working in her life. But also think about in this unimaginable harvest, think about the active faith that Ruth demonstrated and we'll see in Naomi later. The result wasn't automatic just because you go into the field and ask, can I glean here? Can I just pick up the leftovers of whatever other people don't take? Whatever might be discarded or maybe have some unsightliness to it. I'll take that. That will be my food. There was not automatic. Boaz didn't have to be kind or generous. And she didn't have to find Boaz's field either. It wasn't promised that that would be the case. Ruth didn't expect what was taking place. And yet it is also true that even if Ruth had gone out and only brought back a bowl full, that God still would have been good that day he would have been faithful to his children to provide for them and to be for them the god that he promised to be in her active faith she's speaking about what may be involved in yielding to grace do you remember in the one of the first two sermons that we looked at this passage do you remember what naomi said to ruth in chapter 1 she said go back my daughter you have no prospects here you have no hope of finding a husband you're not going to have babies here If you come back with me. You will be a widow forever. The rest of your life. And you will be with me. And then I'm going to die. And how can I provide for you? No, my daughter. Go back. That's what Naomi was telling her. This is about a life of faith. If you follow me, you go back to the God of the people of Israel. My people. She's speaking about what may be involved. If Ruth really did yield her life to the Lord Jesus. Nothing is guaranteed to us. Except that His grace will be sufficient for all of our needs. I can't say you're going to have bags full of food. I can't say you're going to have friends or family other than me. And most importantly, she says, God will never be our debtor. You don't serve Him and do things for Him and then expect that He will do the quid pro quo and give you back what you gave to Him. He doesn't work that way. There's no promise of financial security, far less material prosperity. God does not guarantee our comfort. That's what Naomi told her. And so here is Ruth walking in active faith. She said, your God will be my God. Your people will be mine. Where you die, I will die. And so she's put feet to this commitment of her love for Naomi and what seems to be her profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and hope in Him. And so as Ruth comes shuffling in the door and dragging this enormous, or maybe carrying this enormous bag of grain, Naomi is dumbfounded. Where did you work? Where did you glean? Blessed is the one who took notice of you at all and gave any favor to you. And then she tells her. Ruth says, well, it was it was Boaz, this man that I met today, and he gave me so much more than I could ever have asked for. All I wanted to do was pick up the leftovers. And he gave me that and so much more. And so she explains to her mother-in-law, and here is Naomi, finally, this one who seems to be almost a mute in her grief. And she is bursting with questions and blessings. Where did you clean? Where did you work? Blessed is the one that took notice of you, my daughter. Naomi knew that such a heap of grain, there was no way all of that was coming home unless there was some outside help. Who is the one? She wanted to know. Her words were both a proclamation of best wishes for that man, who she would soon find out was Boaz, and an exclamation of her joyous gratitude for his generosity. Praise the Lord that this one took notice of you. And she says took notice. And you might remember that that was something that Ruth had asked in chapter 2 verse 10 when Boaz was so kind to her. Why are you taking notice of me? Why are you giving me anything more than just a passing glance? Why are you specializing on me? Why have I found favor in your eyes? Ruth then tells Naomi the last word In her sentence. It's almost as if the writer is wanting to build up the tension. The man with whom I work today is Boaz. He's the one who favored us today and gave us food. And so, point number one: an unimaginable harvest. It wasn't just the food, it wasn't just Boaz. It was God's grace in both of their lives. He was working for them. They had no idea, but he had been working a plan all that time that Ruth and Naomi would go home when they did that Boaz would not be out of the field that day. He could have been somewhere else tending to something else, but by God's providence, he was there. And it was an unimaginable harvest that they took home. Number two, whose kindness in verses 20 to 22? You remember Naomi said, Blessed be he of the Lord. This was a specific request. May the Lord reward this man's favor and his grace. Because he was gracious and he had favor on you, Ruth. And then she says, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And the question is, whose kindness is Naomi being thankful for? Whose kindness is it? Who are the living and the dead? And this is the first time in the book that Naomi actually speaks about Ruth as being part of the covenant family. In the the Hebrew language, when she says the living, it is a plural form. She could have been just speaking about herself and it would have been singular. But it was very intentionally written. The living, both of us, you and me, you're part of my family now. And the dead, speaking about Elimelech and their two sons who were gone. But whose kindness is she speaking about? Whose kindness is she praising? The grammar is not very clear or conclusive here. Perhaps it was intentionally left ambiguous. Was it Boaz's kindness? Because he was favorable to them? That he treated them so well? Or was it God's? The godly character of the man Boaz is certainly to be honored. He obeyed the law of God and he even exceeded the expectations. Boaz was not simply concerned with the obligations of the law, though he was. That was not the limit to which he would be faithful to his God. He had a heart that had been touched by God's covenant faithfulness and it overflowed with covenant faithfulness to others. You remember we talked about this specific law that God had given His people. That when you have a field and you're harvesting, you're not to harvest the edge of the field. It's to be left for the the poor and the widow and the fatherless. And it is to be a reminder of you, a reminder to you of God's faithfulness to you when you were slaves as children in Egypt and He brought you out. And so Boaz knew this to be true and he decided he would not only do that and be faithful, but he would also do more. He is a godly man who is to be honored. But that's not everything. Think about the wonder of God's provision in Boaz, this close relative, and to the harvest and the leftover meal. There should be deep, deep humility in Ruth's heart and Naomi's heart. And we saw it come out in Ruth. And I think we begin to see it here in Naomi. And I think there's a question that she's asking. And I think it's a question that maybe you and I ask too Is this really true? Is God really good this way to his children? Does He really provide? Can I really depend on Him? I'm the one who messed up. I'm the one who left. He didn't. I went with my husband. We went together. Is He really going to provide for me again? Is He really going to care for me the way that the covenant says that He will? God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. We sang that hymn a few weeks ago by William Cowper, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I imagine there was a deep humility in Naomi's heart as she heard the word Boaz because she said he's a a relative of ours. He's actually a close relative. And in, in the book of Ruth, this idea of a kinsman redeemer is expanded more than almost any other place in Scripture. We see it in living color. There is some familial and... Obligation, familial love and obligation between Boaz and Ruth and Naomi that we're going to see play out in this passage. But what was a kinsman redeemer to do? Why was it significant that Naomi would say, he's not just a relative, he's not just an uncle or a cousin, he's actually a close relative. She's making this statement with significance. What did they do? What did a kinsman redeemer do in the Old Testament? They had obligation to buy back relatives who had fallen into debt and had to sell themselves off according to Leviticus chapter 25. In other cases, they were obligated to marry a widower's wife to raise up a child for a brother who had died according to Deuteronomy chapter 25. This was God's way of preserving the family heritage and name. It was a way that God would make sure that the clans of the people of Israel would never go extinct. That if something did happen, he made provision that they would still have a name. And you say, well, wait a minute. Um, Boaz isn't Eliminate's brother. So why are you calling him a kinsman redeemer? And we'll see more of that in the next passages. But Boaz is a man of godly character and honor. And it seems that he understands exactly what's going on. And that Naomi, in putting these pieces together, is seeing this take place too. Naomi had marriage in mind. For Ruth and Boaz. And some say that this was actually a literary convention. This whole conversation that we read last week between Boaz and Ruth was a betrothal type scene where he is blessing her and saying, I will provide for you, give you a place. I'm welcoming you actually into the working group of people in my family, in my clan, and you will be a part of this. And so Na- Naomi is saying, Well, it seems to me two and two equals four. I don't think she's the grandma that just wants to match people up. I don't think that's what's going on here. There is, it seems, a bit of covenant faithfulness that has come back into her mind. And she's thinking about what God is doing. So lastly, I want to talk about Naomi's theology at work. You might remember from a few weeks ago, we talked about costly discipleship. As Ruth was being urged, go back to Moab. Don't come with me to Bethlehem. I can't offer you anything. She gave this kind of ultimatum. You can follow me and have Jehovah plus the promise of nothing in Bethlehem. Or you can go back to Moab and have the promise of everything but not Jehovah. You won't be in His land with His people. You won't be part of His covenant there. And what was it that Naomi said to the women when they said, Call me Mara"? What or who was at work in everything that was taking place? What was going on in her life? Who had afflicted her? Who had afflicted Naomi? She told the ladies. She said these three things succinctly. She said, God exists. I believe that it's true that He lives. That He is almighty. He is in charge of everything that happens. Everything that happens to me and to you and to everyone else. Nothing comes into the world that He doesn't bring to pass. He's in charge of it all. All the seas and lands are His. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God exists. God is almighty. And she said, God has afflicted me. I went out full and He brought me back empty. That was her theology. This has happened because God is in control. Ruth chapter 1 verse 21, I went out full and He has brought me back empty. She has a sense though. And maybe you see it there. God has forsaken me. He has forsaken me. As she was talking to the women, she said, call me Mara, for this is bitter for me. God has forsaken me and my household for our disobedience to Him, for our forsaking of Him, that He acts that way. You do it to Him, He does it to you. He turns it right back around. And isn't that the way way some of us think? But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that He is faithful even when we are not faithful. That He is good even when we are not obedient. That He cares for His children. Yes, absolutely. And unequivocally, He disciplines those who belong to Him. And He does allow the consequences of our choices to come back on us. But He does not abandon His people. And Naomi is about to see that. Her eyes are opening. Her heart is about to burst with being amazed by God's grace. Who had brought Ruth, this dear, faithful daughter-in-law, into her life? And you might say, well, she's a foreigner, Pastor, and that son had no business marrying a foreigner. But he did. God brought Ruth into her life. It was God who had done it. Who ended the famine? God did. Who moved Naomi to come back home? Who brought word to her that there was actually rain again in Bethlehem and that there was actually going to be a harvest? This was noteworthy. This wasn't news. This was noteworthy. God has visited His people again. They have prayed. Who was at work doing that? God was. He brought that news to her. How did it end up that Ruth was in Boaz's field and that he would be so faithful in this time, like the time of the judges, when it says that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes? How could it be that all this would happen then when things seemed so bleak? Is it true that God has not forsaken me? Is it true that He's still providing? Perhaps if you took any one of those things that I just listed, what we called a couple weeks ago a happenstance happening, if you took any one of them on their own, you might say, Well, it's encouraging to see things might be looking up for Naomi. She's caught a break after some of the hardest hits that anyone could endure in life. She's buried her husband her two children. She is coming back home from the land of Moab. Thank goodness things seem to be looking up for her. But if you put all of those things together, it is unmistakably the providence of God. And for Naomi, the scales on her eyes and her heart have fallen off. The hard heart of stone that maybe she had towards the Lord and towards His goodness for her has melted. You would think that her knees would buckle that her face would touch the ground and she would cry out, Hallelujah! He is with me. He's at work. He hasn't left me. His hand is upon me. He's not gone. Can you believe it, Ruth? I know you didn't know who Boaz was when you were out in the field, but I'm telling you, God is at work and I can't believe it. I can't believe that this is true for me. But secondly... Naomi's theology at work. There's a book written by a man named Ian Wright. The title of the book is God is Always Better Than We Can Imagine. As glorious as it is to see God's provision for Naomi, to hear that a daughter of the covenant named Ruth is now part of the family, to realize that the covenant of grace remains on his children, that he is still with them and for them, and that the foreigner Ruth may actually have some Prospects of actually marrying Boaz. Naomi had told her, it's impossible. You're not going to have a husband. I think God enjoys proving us wrong when we say it is not possible. He enjoys proving us wrong because He's the one on the throne, not us. There's another story though that's being written, maybe under the lines of what we're reading in this narrative, this life of these people. This is real. This is real everyday life for them. Eating or not eating. Having a home together or not. There's another story that's being written. Ruth and Boaz would have a son named Obed who was the father of a boy named Jesse. And Jesse would have a son named David. And God promised to His people that the great King, the Lord Jesus Christ, would sit on the throne of David forever. And as you think about hallelujah coming out of Naomi's lips, and the ache in her heart may be waning just a little bit, think about some of the words that David had to say. As God expressed His covenant to him, I want to read these words to you from Second Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. This was after God had expressed His covenant to David. He told him about his faithfulness. These were the words that David said. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. These were the words of a man's heart who had been touched by the grace of God. And he was amazed by God's grace. I want to ask you this morning, are you amazed by God's grace in your life? I told you last week that one of the things that sticks out of this story is that Ruth, when she received the favor and grace from Boaz that she did, she was amazed and astonished. She fell on her face before him and she touched her face in the dirt and said, why? She didn't stand there and say, well, oh, I deserve this. This seems right. You should do this for me. And she wasn't upset that she didn't get something else that she thought she should have. She was incredibly humbled by God's grace in her life. Are you humbled by God's grace in your life? Are there dark times that you have walked through? And that only by God's grace do you still have faith in Him? I think many of us can point to those times. And this was one of those for Naomi. Her life Had been changed significantly. Everything was different because of what had taken place. That one trip. And maybe you think back in life and you say, if I hadn't done that one dumb thing, God could still have his favor and his hand upon me. If I hadn't made that one bad decision or taken that one wrong turn, God would still be with me. He would love me. And I would have a sense of his presence. And what we see here is that it's not what Naomi felt that mattered. It was what was true that mattered. That God was working in her family and even in her own life. Not just something out there that He was doing. It was something in here that He was doing. He was reminding her, I am faithful. I am good. And though you are not faithful, I must be. I want to share some words with you from a hymn. Uh, It's a song actually not a hymn, that uh, Craig Courtney wrote that we've been practicing in the choir. We've taken a break for the summer. I've been reading it and listening to it for weeks. And I'll I'll try to get through it. Just a few lines. Sometimes a light surprises. The Christian while she sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in His wings. When comforts are declining, He grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer us after the rain. That's true. God does that for His people. It is the Lord who does that. It is not our feelings or good hopes for a better future, or send good vibes this way, or maybe just have good thoughts about me. It is the Lord who does good for His people. Another line. In holy contemplation, we sweetly then pursue the theme of God's salvation and find it ever new. Set free from present sorrow, we cheerfully can say, Even let the unknown tomorrow bring with it what it may. It is only the Christian who has hope in the living God who can see, who can sing that song. If you don't believe there is hope in the Lord Jesus apart from you, you will despair, dear one. This life and this world is too hard, and these women knew it. This is not just a story in the Bible, this is someone's life. And they carried grief with them for years. I don't believe that just because they saw the goodness of Boaz that Naomi forgot her husband or her sons. She didn't. But she found grace and favor in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe she hit ground. Because she knew, He is with me. He is holy beyond anything I could imagine. And I am so thankful. Grace should amaze us. It should put us in wonder and awe that our Heavenly Father, the One who created the heavens and the earth, is the One who loves us as His people. And I pray that on the day that we sing that song, I can hold it together. But it has been something that has warmed my heart to the Gospel. That my Father is good, even when I am not. The song goes on to say, It can bring with it nothing. Speaking about the next day. But He will bear us through. Who gives the lilies clothing will clothe His people too. Beneath the spreading heavens no creature but is fed. And He who feeds the ravens will give His children bread. That is true. He is good. And the days that are ahead of you, though they may seem cloudy and dark, He promises to be with you and He promises to provide. Have faith. And have wonder at His grace. Your people of God. Let us pray. Father, I thank You for Your goodness. And Your favor in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a testimony. We see in Your Word of Your faithfulness. And Your goodness. And those things are what impact how we look at this world. And how we look at our own lives. Lord, we, we acknowledge we admit we are not deserving of Your grace, and yet You pour it out on us each day. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't take it for granted, as though it is something that is owed to us, like employees who work. Having Your grace is a blessing, and it is our hope. And I pray, Lord, that we would keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus, even in the midst of deep darkness and pain. And thank You that You promised to be with us by Your Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand together and sing hymn number 460, Amazing Grace. Take an offering to the glory of God. Father, we commit this offering of our tithes and offerings to you today for your glory alone. And we acknowledge and admit that all the good things that we enjoy come to us from your hand. And we humbly also receive with the good also the bad. And that in the good seasons and in the bad seasons, you are still on your throne. Lord, we pray that you would take our tithes and offerings and use them for the sake of the glory of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that lost souls, people who do not know You will hear the Gospel because of our obedience. And Lord, we pray that this would all be for the glory of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. the benediction of our Lord. Now may God be your exceeding joy, Christ your unfailing hope, and the Spirit your unfailing comforter in all of your worship and work and all of your troubles until Jesus comes again. Amen.